seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, we got a roll program. Houston, we read you. Astronaut Alex and Davis reporting for duty here in the landing castle. Houston, we've had a problem. You have to talk about the movie that's made. It's wild. It's insane. The ankle has landed. That's one small step for man, and one giant leap Mission log, this is Through the Lens reporting. It is Soul 70 here ordering the planet W3GL911, and we would like to emphasize our commitment to exploring the final frontier, not only here in space, but back on Earth with the final frontier storytelling, movies. No, this is not a Star Trek episode, but its inspirations upon the genre will always be felt. Of course, we're doing a space episode here on Through the Lens, discussing some of our favorite space movies, the impact of space movies on pop culture, and maybe even the science of them. But wait! Hold on, I'm getting a fresh transmission from Mission Control. It is a fun batch of news. Before we get into the news, of course, I have a little mission statement about this episode I want to read. So there's actually three intros to this. Space has had a magnetic effect on people since the dawn of time, and I'm sure Kubrick would agree with that. Maybe it's because of the unknown, the potential for discovery, or just for the adventurous spirits inside every human. Humans have been telling stories about going to space as far back as the 2nd century with Lucian of Samosotas when he wrote A True Story. Which isn't really a true story, but I'm sure he wanted it to be called that for the sake of the story. Which details a trip to the moon, meeting extraterrestrial creatures, and getting involved in an interplanetary war. And as long as we have been able to make movies, space has been at the forefront, with one of the first movies ever made concerning a trip to the moon with 1902's Trip to the Moon. So, on Through the Lens today, we want to lend ourselves to the history of space and human history and media and lay out some of the best movies and why they are so important. Alright Alex, your turn. Good Lord, Davis. I don't know how I can follow that. Let's all give a round of applause for Davis Carroll with not one, not two, but three intros for today's episode. And yes, in case you somehow didn't pick up on what was happening, we are doing pretty much the space as a genre almost. The argument could be made whether it's a genre, whether it's just a significant subgenre of science fiction. It is certainly without a doubt a setting, and we are going to be talking about 2001 a Space Odyssey, Apollo 13, First Man, Moon, The Martian, and Ad Astra. That's six films, each offering their own unique interpretation on space as a setting, space as a means for storytelling. Now, I know some of you listening might wonder, what the heck, did he not mention Interstellar? No, I didn't, because we have beaten that horse to dead many times, and... Certainly, there might be some references, specifically inspirations that Nolan clearly took from 2001 A Space Odyssey and references to it overall and how it fits in the genre. But primarily, we want to focus on six movies that we've never really talked about in much detail. I think we talked about Moon one time, but not not looking at how it fits in the genre, more of how Sam Rockwell is pretty awesome. I've certainly mentioned Martian because I love The Martian. It is is a lot of fun. And and another really good film from Ridley Scott, one of the many... Many directors to take heavy inspiration from Stanley Kubrick, as have hundreds of directors, I'm sure. That's not even an exaggeration in number. 
And like you said, again, space has been such a critical part of cinema for ever. And we certainly have a lot of fun things to talk about today. But first, Davis, trivia, like you said. I'm going to go through these questions right now. How many movies have been made that include the name Tarzan? They're like 68 or something. 89. 89. 89. I doubt anybody got that without Googling. I certainly didn't even know that that was even a thing in, Wait, any, in any sense. One question real quick, Alex. What episode is this? This is episode 70. I got it right. I put that into the intro if you didn't notice. I did notice, and you were, in fact, correct. This is episode 70. And before we get to the second trivia question, Davis, let's actually talk about that for a second. 70 episodes in the podcast. We've also crossed 2,000 total listens this week, the same with our 70th episode. And, you know, February was actually our most listened month ever. So this is just a, you know, we're going to we're going to talk about this certainly when the show eventually wraps up near the end of the semester. But just a quick thank you to anybody that's ever listened to any of the podcasts, whether it's people skipping straight through the news segments or Megan's entire family who listened to just the parts featuring Megan. We appreciate it's all up, listens that we get. And really, when we started this podcast, it was just for the fact that we kept talking about movies while preparing for our sports show. And it was never about getting a lot of people to listen to it, but now we appreciate anybody who has ever listened or enjoyed this podcast, whether it's helped you doing homework, preparing for med school interviews, making trips across the country, and more. We are happy to have you here on Through the Lens. And with that, at the 1939 Academy Awards, one of my mom's favorite films, Gone with the Wind, won quite a few Oscars, but how many Oscars did that film win, Davis? 17. I don't know. Is that wrong? Yes. I didn't think that was seventeen. I didn't think it was that absurd. The most the the most successful film at the Oscars of all time is two. That would be Lord of the Rings: Return of the King and Titanic, who both have eleven. Oh, not as in sorry, (laughs) I phrased that poorly. Um, and we we've written articles about those movies, and no, it's ten, Davis. They won ten. I I don't think seventeen was too off base. I don't think a film was ever nominated for seventeen. I didn't say twenty. Okay, well you're closer to twenty than you were to ten. Whatever. Whatever. And that is the trivia. We'll obviously have a trivia question coming up later, a little easier than these last two. I, I liked having some difficult things to start with. Once we're past the news, throw it back to me because I need to. I'm going to intro uh, how we're going to talk about the movies. Absolutely, consider that done, Davis. A new trailer for John Wick Four, starring Keanu Reeves, has been released. It also stars Bill Skarsgård, Lawrence Fishburne, one of my favorite actors, Hiroyuki Sanada, Shamir Anderson, Lance Reddick, Rena So. Sawayama, Scott Adkins, and Ian McShane. The film will hit theaters March 24th. Davis, I don't imagine the John Wick films are much your favorite type of genre. I haven't watched, I'm sure I'd enjoy it, but I haven't watched them. They're very, really, very I don't successful. Really plan to. It's basically sort of a new take on the dumb action film because it certainly is an action film still, but it's just better put together, higher production value, kind of the antithesis of the 90s action films that were more about things exploding in the background. They're pretty good. Keanu Reeves is interesting in it but you know it's a very popular franchise and also a franchise that is not getting too monotonous which is we cannot say the same for many a franchise going on in cinema right now davis and i will certainly talk about a certain film that we all saw at the theaters after our last episode of the podcast we left armageddon to go watch that movie and well we have some thoughts i'm sure davis might have a lack of thought depending on how you interpret that. A new poster for season three of The Mandalorian has released. I think I already talked about that. And that series, of course, talking about things that are getting a little monotonous and just cameos, people surviving. Obviously, Davis and I have both been very Star Wars out. Maybe I'll convince him to watch The Mandalorian. Who knows? Doubtful. Oh. 
Well, I'll give it my best I shot. I like half the first season. I don't think I need to see anymore. Well, honestly, the first season was the better one, and that says, well, I guess probably not a good I thing in your case. It. A new Davis, new Lord of the Rings films are in development. I was talking about Warner this Brothers. in my class the other day. Warner Brothers and New Line made a deal with the rights holder Embracer Group and will be making new films based off the IP. They will reportedly not be remakes of the Peter Jackson trilogy. That's according to a report from The Hollywood Reporter. Is there no end to our pain and suffering, Davis? I don't get how they're going to make a new IP if they're just – are they adapting the books or not? Well, yeah, because that's the thing is that they're adapting the books and they would be a remake of Peter Jackson's trilogy because even though you could could say, well, Peter Jackson doesn't faithfully adapt the books, it'd still be a remake because he he adapts a lot of the main plot points. Mm Mm-hmm. I the problem with Lord of the Rings to me is that it is it's unique in the fact that most films even some that are not very successful or films that are not box office hits like say John Wick can spawn a universe. And the trick with spawning a universe Davis in my honest opinion is that you don't make a perfect film to start. Mm-hmm. Because then how do you spawn a universe if you have to match up with perfection? And the problem with Lord of the Rings is the three original films are pretty much perfect. You can argue about length all you want, but... No, I might rewatch those. Take, take length out of the equation of those three films. Take length out of the equation as a criticism. They look amazing. Mm-hmm. They are amazing. The acting is brilliant, despite the fact that it's not really, you know, the who's who of stars, even though it is an incredible ensemble. I mean, everything about it is perfect. It won all the awards because of that. And the problem is you're always going to have to match up to it. We saw The Hobbit run into that because what was one of The Hobbit's biggest issues? It somehow looked worse than a film that came out 10 years before it. Only movie I've ever left during. Like you've said, a quite, quite a terrible. I mean, There just, was almost another one recently, which we saw. But you were with friends, of course. You had to stick around. If I had a, my car, I would have left. That's very fair. That's very fair. I think that's, the main, that's, again, problem number one. How do you match with perfection? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you follow that? Like even Avatar, for example, it's spawning all those sequels because the first film is by no means a perfect film. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. <laughs> like, And again, where do you go? Because it's the Lord of the Rings and it's about the one ring of power and the movies touch on the original battle. But if you watch, I mean, you know who survives the original fight for the one ring before they kill Sauron the first time. Unless they do the Cimmerillion, if you know that one. Um, It's like the lore book. Oh, well. Like, quote-unquote lore book. Uh, He wrote it in 1977. No, no, it was released in 1977 posthumously. It's just kind of like other stories around Middle-earth. So the name, yeah, it's middle But then that, that's not a movie series. It's a collection though. of myths and stories in varying styles by the English writer J.R.R. Tolkien. I don't know. They either have to readapt the main line, Lord of the Rings. Especially because the Rings of Power is going on. What? So after? But what's after the... Because are you going to get into that dangerous territory that the sequel trilogy got into this year where what happens when you follow up a trilogy that ends with the Chosen One winning and then you say, actually, the Chosen One didn't win? Then what... Like, what are we going to say? That, oh, actually, Frodo didn't destroy the One Ring? I think uh, they shouldn't be making anything without J.R.R. Tolkien writing it. And since J.R.R. Tolkien can't write it... Just like like when the Game of Thrones tried to go off of George R.R. Martin's ideas, like away from them, rather. It didn't end very well, from what I've heard. I've watched it. I think a middle-age mythological film series is certainly a a possible success because there are some interesting details there. I just think 
Tolkien was such a good writer, and Peter Jackson did a great job of tying together all the loose plot lines. Like, for example, the whole Mines of Moria scene at the very beginning, like in the first film, when Gimli thinks his entire, you know, people should be there and they're just gone. Mm -hmm. Then they they tie that together pretty well. They're like, oh, well, this is what happened. Okay, so do you want to watch a film of what you already... Like there's there's not it's like it's like almost think about Star Wars for example a New Hope alludes to Rogue One and then never touches on it for forty years so then you uh-huh. can make Rogue One yeah I think uh, Gerald Tolkien he wrote such expansive lore that you could probably write a story within the lore but I don't think they should be coming up with any lore themselves yeah. I just think I mean. Just let it let it lie, man. Let it lie. It was the it, it's probably the greatest just... trilogy of all time. If not, I mean, I don't I don't know what other trilogy might supplant it. To be honest with you, the Ocean's trilogy is pretty good. Okay, okay, no, it's not. Um, I kidding, kidding. The ones don't. you haven't seen, or you have seen now. We did a podcast, Davis. Oh my goodness, you and you liked them. Things. Yeah, I did. I did. But but the Lord of the Rings trilogy is uh, the Lord okay. of the Rings trilogy, a machine in its own right. Another really sad um news story for at least myself and Davis. Mindhunter is confirmed to be finished by David Fincher. He says, and I quote, it's a very expensive show, and in the eyes of Netflix, we didn't attract enough of an audience to justify such an investment. It's a Sisyphean task. Every year we hear that they're not going to make season three. For the rest it, of our lives, they're going to be telling us. Fincher could win. He's like, his, he, he's probably won an Oscar, but if he hasn't, he'll get his Oscar Best Director go up there and be like, by the way, guys, no, Mindhunter. No Mindhunter season three. <laughs> not, not coming out, guys. Thanks. Scorsese's getting a trillion dollars from all the different streaming services to make whatever he wants, but it's... Fincher. You tell me the Irishman justified its investment, but Fincher can't make. Well, Scorsese's just going like, "Hey, I'm Scorsese. Give me some money, and I'll make whatever I want." And they're like, "Okay, you're Scorsese." So he's making the flowers, uh, like yeah, Killers of the Flower Moon or something yeah, like he's that. Just another little passion project for him. And I mean, I'm not mad about it because I like Scorsese. Don't Look Up. It was fun. Wait, now Don't Look Up wasn't his movie though. I don't know why. I don't know why I said that. Was that was Adam McKay. Uh, not Adam, I was thinking. Of, I was thinking of his more. What's his more recent movie? Scorsese. Yeah, it was The Irishman. He did the Irishman. He has done the Departed. Scorsese. I don't know how I thought. Oh, because I, I, I remember I kept thinking Wolf that, of Wall Street. Okay, yeah. Okay. So thing is, he's made a lot of great movies over and over and over again. But yeah, it's very difficult, especially because we've seen Netflix just give money to any. He like, did make Hugo as well. We got mm-hmm. Tall Girl two, Davis, but we're not going to get Mindhunter season three. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I. It's just. It's just sad. Because his last directorial thing was The Irishman in 2019, and he's worked on a show called Pretend It's a City. Interesting. He directed that entire series. That's a very interesting show. What is it about? So I'm just looking into this right now. Pretend It's a City. Wonder in New York City streets and fascinating mind of... Okay. Anyway. Um... Sadness for Mindhunter. Also, the first trailer for a film, The Machine, starring Bert, Bert Kreischer, Jimmy Tatro, and Mark Hamill has been released. The film will be hitting theaters May 26. It is based around Bert Kreischer's viral uh, stand-up comedy routine where he talked about he joined the mob in Russia. I know a lot of people don't like Bert Kreischer. He's an acquired taste. I think his telling of that story of The Machine is pretty funny. The rest of the stuff, I don't really know. But the film's got Mark Hamill in it. So that's pretty cool. And it, the trailer actually looked... Pretty good, admittedly. Are you are you looking up uh, Burt Kreischer? Yeah, I just couldn't remember which one he was. I don't. Oh, yeah. I, he, yeah, I'm not a super That's huge fair. fan. That's fair. Well, that movie will be coming out May 26th, and then oh, Davis, oh goodness, I didn't even I didn't even realize this when I wrote it down. An it prequel series titled that. Welcome to Dairy is in development at HBO Max. What about what? 
I really can't do this anymore, I, man. We gotta <laughs> stop talking about these. I mean, why? Because it'll make money. Will it? They think it will. Whatever his name is, Zaslav or whatever thinks it will. Uh, no, he's done though now. Well, no, he's still in charge of HBO. It's just that Safran and James Gunn are over at DC now. But Zaslav is still in charge of HBO, or Warner Discovery is the is the official <sighs> title. Wow, that. Like I'm trying to think of what the what the pull in for that is. Like, is it going to be different iterations of Pennywise showing up throughout? I don't, I don't even. Is Stephen uh, King helping write it? I cannot imagine. He. Ugh, I cannot imagine he's even touching that with a ten foot pole. Stephen King's got bigger fish to fry, and by that I mean keep yelling about how he hates The Shining. That's true. That is true. And with that, Davis, I'll throw it back to you. Okay, so for this episode. We we Alex mentioned a lot of movies we're going to be talking about, but we're going to split them up in different sections, just as Kubrick does for 2001. So obviously 2001 starts with a dawn, the dawn of man. We're going to start with a dawn, the dawn of the space movie with 2001: A Space Odyssey, and then we're going to go to like uh, the the continuation of space exploration in movies. So we're gonna, then we're going to talk about. First Man and Apollo 13, and then we'll talk about like space, the final frontier, futuristic space movies, so Moon, Ad Astra, The Martian. Exactly, and how each of those films takes a very different approach, and I really think, Davis, that's a very perfect summary of it, especially because of the fact that 2001 really inspired every single one in a clear way. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything else to add? There? That was it. Because I think, certainly, you can see how 2001 molded what people's perception of the future was because this movie, which we're going to go through a cast list of at least unknowns in the fact that I didn't recognize anything. Mm-hmm. It was 1968, so it's a very different age of Hollywood than even post-1975, which is when I think Hollywood became more blockbuster territory with all the big stars. This film came out the year before um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, which is really a crazy thing to me of the fact that I've always credited Hollywood for taking concepts that existed in the real world and going a step further, right? Like, you know, a, a concept like World War II, not a concept, an event like World War II creates an entirely new interpretation on the war film, right? And so on and so forth, Vietnam and so on and so forth. This movie existed before we'd even seen the moon, before we'd even stepped foot on it. And this movie takes so many incredible concepts. It's got... Here, Dulea as Dr. David Bowen, Gary Lockwood as Dr. Frank Poole, William Sylvester as Dr. Haywood Floyd, and then the only real other character of consequence is Douglas Rain as the voice of Hal 9000, and then Alan Gifford and Ann Gillis as Poole's father and mother. It's directed by Stanley Kubrick, one of the great directors of all time. This was in the middle of his historic run of films that included Dr. Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, The Shining, and one other that you mentioned earlier, Pass Davis. Like Glory was his first one, but he ah. also made, um, oh, well, I can't remember it now, but yeah. You can't remember it now, but I mean, really an incredible run. Oh, we also then again followed all that with Full Metal Jacket in 1987, one of the all-time great films. Really, this was in the middle of a seven-year run that was Doctor Strange Love, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and then A Clockwork Orange. And then, of course, in 1980, he dropped The Shining too much fanfare, and subsequently controversy. 2001 was also written by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Originally, Kubrick and Clarke had planned to develop a 2001 novel first, free of the constraints of film, and then write the screenplay. 
They plan the writing's credits to be screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, based on a novel by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, to reflect their preeminence in their respective fields. In practice, the screenplay developed in parallel with the novel, with only some elements being common to both. In 1970 interview, Kubrick said, There are a number of differences between the book and the movie. The novel, for example, attempts to explain things much more explicitly than the film does, which is an inevitable in a verbal medium. The novel came about after we did 130-page prose treatment of the film at the very outset. Arthur took all the existing material plus an impression of some of the rushes and wrote the novel. As a result, there's no between the novel and the film. I think the divergences between the two works are interesting. And then the cinematography by Jeffrey Unsworth, some incredible cinematography, by the way. Of course, with the eye of Kubrick, those two work together to make some really incredible stuff. Edited brilliantly by Ray Lovejoy. And again, I want to touch on this. Editing was a lot more difficult in 1968. You can just d- drop the whole video file into Adobe Premiere and just go about it. I mean, you were, this was still the splicing film era, by the way. Very lack, very lacking in any digital stuff. Again, to set the scene here for this time period, I want to remind everybody that in 1977, nine years after this film, George Lucas created Star Wars A New Hope, and the most complicated visual element of that film was the computer simulation of the mission to blow up the Death Star because that wasn't something they they couldn't just stick a camera on something. They had to build that display. Mm -hmm. So again, just setting the scene for how technologically far behind these directors, writers, and creators were and how much they caught up with their own incredible just ideas. The film actually has no composer, which is the first time we've ever done a movie on the podcast without a composer for me to shout at and go, incredible work. Who made the music then? So that's exactly well, the point. There's obviously the also whatever the song is, like the... Which has become basically the 2001 song. So from early in production, Kubrick decided that he wanted the film to be a primarily nonverbal experience that did not rely on the traditional techniques of narrative cinema and in which the music would play a vital role in evoking particular moods. About half the music in the film appears either before the first line of dialogue or after the final line. Almost no music is heard during scenes with dialogue. The film is notable for its innovative use of classical music taken from existing commercial recordings. Most feature films then and now are typically accompanied by elaborate film scores or songs written specifically for them by professional composers. In the early stages of production, Kubrick commissioned the score for 2001 from Hollywood composer Alex North, who had written for the score for Spartacus and also worked in Dr. Strangelove. During post-production, Kubrick chose to abandon North's music in favor of the now familiar classical pieces he had earlier chosen as temporary music for the film. North did not learn that the score had been abandoned until he saw the film's premiere. Oh, goodness me. Well, that is the two sides of the coin with Kubrick, wouldn't you say? Or maybe the double-edged sword with Kubrick. A brilliant art- artist, but sometimes at the... A jerk. At, yeah, at the negative effect or negative impact He's a perfectionist. On, exactly, and very, very famously so. Obviously, all the stories about how he treated Shelley Duvall in The Shining very famously ran roughshod around ca- film sets and around his cast and crew, but he did therefore put out some incredible art following it. You may or may not know that there's a sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, Alex. It's called 2010 The Year We Make Contact, and it has Kira Dolly in it. Are you, are you for real? Yes. It also has John Lithgow and Helen Mirren. And it's, but it's not, of course, it's written. It's not Kubrick. It's not at all But it does have Douglas Rain as HAL 9000 again as well. Well, and it's got Roy uh, Scheider from Jaws? Yeah. Helen Mirren? But Roy Scheider's playing Dr. Floyd, who they recast because the other actor had died. Okay. 
This movie came out in 87, I think. 84. Oh, and it's actually based on the book that Arthur, Arthur C. Clark, Clark excuse me, writ, wrote, 2010 Odyssey 2, which is a really terrible name. Um, I don't know anything about this movie. Wow. I just know that uh, Dave is back, so is Hal, and they're going to Jupiter or something. That's all I know, but you might thought you might find it interesting that there's a sequel to this. It says, so I'm just looking into it now, the, the responses are generally positive. A critical consensus reads, 2010... Is or 2010 struggles to escape from the shadow of its monolithic predecessor, but offers brainy adventure on a more straightforward voyage through the cosmos. Ebert gave it three out of four stars. I think that again is almost like what we talked about earlier with the Lord of the Rings discussion. How do you follow the movie of movies? How do you follow the sci-fi film that is the sci-fi film? And let's talk about that right now. Again, it's two and a half hours, and I think is the longest film of this of our episode today. First Man was also two and a half hours. Yes, but I mean, this one's two hours and 25. I think First Man's two hours and 21. I thought it was 27. Uh, you could be right. I believe it was two, two, okay, two hours and 21. But you can look it up by all means. On a, on a modest budget, again, I say of $10.5 million, it grossed a solid $146 million at the global box office. 2001 A Space Odyssey Davis. This film, there's so much cultural context to this as well because – you were coming out of the era of fun movies of you know Elvis Presley box office hits and of a space series that was more like Star Trek. You know Star Trek was the at the very forefront of it with its TV series and that was kind of what was driving space at the time was the idea of bright colored shirts. Everyone's got a color coded shirt and Fun creatures that have that look different and talk different Often and lizard like exactly bright colors and then two thousand one is the opposite and it sets that in the very beginning there is not a line of dialogue through the fir- through the first twenty three minutes of action unless you consider the apes yelling at each other or the I believe it's like um they're not they're like what are they called again they're not technically called apes their their official title they're is proto humans or something like that yeah hominins that's what they're called oh, right? I, I remember I remember that from the term yes that's what I was because that's that's what Wikipedia at least called and I was like okay that's that's a fair that would a fair be hominins name. correct so you've got that for twenty minutes twenty three minutes if I'm not mistaken and I was having a hard time following exactly what was going on in those scenes I I read a synopsis that explained they it were more. evolving I know I know but like. They, like in the synopsis, it specifically says that they get like a group gets pushed out of their own territory and then comes back. I didn't really gather that the first time around. Again, this is my first time ever viewing this film. I'd not seen it beforehand. Oh, I know it's an iconic film, and it's just such a brilliant reinterpretation of what space can be like versus the bright colors. The only bright colors might be their suits and some lights, but it's a vacuum. It's horrific. It's claustrophobic while simultaneously being barren it's everything that is so terrifying of space that you would ever imagine people were afraid of before ever going to space in one film davis this this you ever you ever heard of a movie so good that it fuels conspiracy theories for the next 70 years i guess it wouldn't be 70 about I mean, 50, 50 55. Yeah. 55, exactly, actually. I'm pretty good. Um, <laughs> After this one is, try. <laughs> this, is, this movie's the reason that people think Kubrick helped fake the space landing. Because he, he shoots it all so well. Yeah. I mean, like, you just see this, and you're like, oh, yeah, this looks like actual space. So he, it's not a leap of, it's not a leap of the mind to think that he helped 
fake the moon landing, which I don't believe. I think we land on the moon. Just want to get that out there. We did land on the moon. <laughs> I would I would also like to like to like to put that forth as well, though of course there are all sorts of theories and responses to that. And I really think one, this is another testament to the fact that miniatures rule them all. Practical effects are the blueprint. They are I mean, every set is I mean, when I when I tell you that watching this film if you're if you're more of a casual viewer, and I don't mean that in a condescending way, I, I really just mean that because you know there there are many ways people watch movies versus it very intensely like Davis and I can versus very just watch to watch. This film will grab your eye immediately when you see sets that have a curvature to it, and you're like, "What? This everything is so detailed. There is not. This film has multiple montages where there's not a line of dialogue spoken." And you're still glued to the screen because of all the incredible sets that have been built by Kubrick. Do you all, know? Wait, say your thing. Just again, like the curved station that was like a Hilton. It do was a Hilton station. Do you know how they did the scene where he was running? Um, I believe I've been told that they also just moved it all together. They right? had a set and they spun the right. set and they yes. moved the camera with it, so he looked like he was running around. Exactly. And in zero gravity. So they built a circular set, basically, and they just moved it. Which, of course, you see that inspiration taken in Inception when Christopher Nolan builds the spinning room. Not necessarily the same concept, but again, this film broke so many levels in in design, in idea, and also in practicality and how they made it work. I'm so certain that George Lucas's emphasis on miniatures in a black screen was in partly inspired by this because... Space had been explored, but in terms of in color and so thoroughly, not maybe as much. And this film really aids to that more so than any. I just, there's even, every film that we're talking about today, I think, has bits and pieces from this film in one way or the other. I think, I think a lot of movies with minimal dialogue can get boring. Um, I watched one recently that I was, it kind of started to lose me just because, you're not having someone talk to you. You're not hearing them talk and uh, just loses your attention. But in this one, I really – I don't think there was ever a moment where I was like, oh, I'm going to get on my phone now. Maybe in like the trippy color sequence near the end. Because it does go a while. I don't think that's necessarily an issue, but yeah. Uh, I think if I'd seen it in theaters, I wouldn't have even considered oh, yeah. my phone. But just when you're sitting at home on your couch, it's just a lot more tempting. But yeah uh, – it's just everything about this movie is so phenomenally shot, paced, most of the time. Uh, it's just, yeah, I don't really care that there's not much dialogue. I, I kind of prefer it that there's not as much dialogue. And when there is dialogue, it's really well yes. done. Every, every line for Hal is written brilliantly. I wrote, I wrote some down. Go ahead. I, I wrote some. I was gonna. I was gonna get to Hal about oh. how terrifying Hal is, and then how he basically blows Frank out the airlock. He doesn't blow. He just kills him though yeah and then once dave comes back and he's like what do you think you, what exactly are you going to do dave Crazy. I, I can't let you do that and then he starts going i'm afraid dave i'm afraid and then he shuts him off he starts he singing sings, so do you know he sings daisy 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 that's the first song that, when they make computers to prove that they could work they had the first computer ever sing that song and you can watch a video of it but that was a reference back to like oh, the first wow. ever computing. Incredible step in like 
non-analog computers. And of course, speaking of computing, as we if you were right here with us for a previous episode and watched the movies with us, you watched Steve Jobs and mm-hmm. watched the opening sequence there where they're trying to get the computer to say hello, and Kate Winslet's character cites the computer in 2001 for speaking and still creeping her out. Yes. Obviously, this is... I'm with her on that. It was very, very creepy. Hal's very freaky, and if I had watched this in 1968... I think I would have also been like, no robots, no yeah, AI. Nope, nope. This kind of got me on the – I was already on the no AI train, but it's just kind of cemented my no AI, no AI It is creepy. It is un- unsettling. Do you, and, think, do you think Hal was sentient? Uh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, to, to make those kind of decisions, yes. However, in theory uh, – Technically, he could make those decisions just to protect the – the mission. I think him saying "I'm afraid" yes, is all you I think, need to I, say. I, that he was I would. I would say so as well. I think. I think you get that when they do the. Inter- I love the you, the way exposition works in this film, where you have the interviews with the astronauts, so they explain it to the audience watching the news segment, and then you're just there as well. I think that's brilliantly done. Again, I think every scene with Hal is just very well put together. And again, this film. I mean, it was one of the first films to have that sort of. I mean, it's. Think of any other AI robot in film afterwards, and how can it not take inspiration from Hal in some way? It's terrifying. How how can they not? How can this film has FaceTime, by the way, which is which is still one of the most painful scenes to watch in film because it's very clear that they were having someone shout the lines at them and say, "Now say your reply," because it's mm-hmm. very, like, very robotic. And that's of course what. Cause well, they, they, they probably have to wait. They have yeah. to wait to hear his line anyway for like the. It said it, there was a seven minute delay. Exactly. No, I'm talking about specifically when he's talking to his daughter. That like very early on. That yeah, one. Okay. It, I was thinking about when he was on when when Dave was talking to his parents. Ah, uh, yeah. No, I was talking about earlier on when I what was his name again? Um, when Floyd. Floyd is talking to his daughter while he's like orbiting the Earth and whatnot. It was just very. But again, what a concept! You got the gra- the gravity toilet instructions and the. I mean, it's just and then uh, like the, the flights food, there. Yes. And the 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 the. Uh, Stewardess is wearing the the like the Velcro on her feet so she can walk in zero g. Exactly, and like the walking up and down and walking around to go into another room that's twisted around and just awesome. Phenomenal. Which I mean, that stewardess scene in the flight thing. How can that Astro not take inspiration from that concept? Exactly. Like I mean, it's uh, just yeah. what I was gonna say. How can any movie in space not take inspiration? This is like the space movie. It is. Like if you're interested in space, you have to watch this. It's 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 the it kind of it kind of came up with all the best ideas on its first try. This this the the meme. It, it's often a meme to say this, but I mean, this film is the blueprint. It is. It, it's the groundwork that is laid. And I want to talk about the ending real quick before we probably have to move on because we do have a lot of movies yeah. to talk about, and each yeah. one going to indicate and a I lot. Can, of I'll explain the ending to concepts. you. Just go ahead. So, yeah. Based on for those who haven't seen 2001: A Space Odyssey, for those who have and have, don't remember, quick refresher. Um, Dave is the last astronaut alive after Hal kills Fra- Frank and the rest. And then he finally gets to Jupiter and sees another of the monoliths, which, by the way, the music for the monolith is just the screaming or whatever the heck. I mean, ugh. but he sees the monolith and then is taken into this vortex that will look eerily similar to those you who have seen Interstellar. Um, wait, I've heard this. I've heard the story. Just go ahead. Dave. They like a single slit. They had like a piece of paper. They put a slit in it and they put on the outside of the camera. And they like move things past it, I'm pretty sure. It's just something like that. Like, it was all in camera. They just move things past the camera with a slit. 
in, in a piece of paper. I want to it's again shout out the that. name Stanley Kubrick and shout out the name Jeffrey Unsworth, but our it's, cinematographer. I think it's a similar Incredible. idea to in Citizen Kane. They do something like that when it looks like there's the big crowd that he's talking to. That's just like they put some holes in a piece of paper and they put light behind it so it looked like it was people or something like that. I wow. Think. Incredible. What a, what a, like this is again I do love practical effects because it forces people practical effects. It it's, forces people to find creative ways to showcase to the viewer what they have imagined I, versus where CGI you just paint in the empty I think if people are like oh practical effects whatever whatever they don't look that good you just show them 2001 you're know, like this is what you can do with practical effects. If you, if like you, when he's float just the moment when when Dave's like floating through to turn off Hal and like the the red room and like it's just so symmetrical and beautiful. They did that with like wires and tape apparently. Just all this zero G stuff was just wires and tape. And it's done I mean you don't even notice the wires. It doesn't even look super wired. And again, I want to touch on one last time the fact that this film got the vacuum of space concept correctly when Frank no is spinning sound. and there's not a sound. You just hear his breathing. He's any other oh, breathing. Gosh. I mean, how many films have taken that concept itself? It's even so cool. I mean, because think about like a movie we just watched, Deep Impact, right? When they're on the comet and there's all that noise and all that all that music, and then it just cuts to them running, and you see the camera inside their helmet, and they're just huffing and puffing. Sure, it's not an, it's not a completely original concept, but how do you not take an inspiration and then make that scene because it's such a difference and such a jarring point? Anyway, Davis, the obligatory the Davis science thing, real quick. Yes, you can't hear anything because it's a vacuum. And you're not able to hear anything unless there's air particles for your sound waves to attach to to go into your ears. Since it's a vacuum, there's no air. So therefore, the sound is gone. Also, Dave would have died when he did his little emergency exit out of the thing. Yeah, because isn't like the whole your head explodes? Well, like, yeah. So your the air in your body wants to go to the vacuum. It's like equilibrium. So it wants to – it'd be just sucked out of you immediately and your head would most likely – we don't really know. We haven't really seen it. Yeah, we, we haven't exactly tried. It's theoretically true that your head would explode. Yes, and is therefore and all your blood would boil because there's it's so cold and stuff. So it boil? It's something like your blood would like you know so hot, so cold is hot or something like that. Oh, like your blood, right. It's right, also right. with the vacuum is trying to leave and your blood would boil and you you're wow. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's the science. And then the ending, of course, this film gets very abstract very quickly. Of course, yes. it sticks with that throughout the whole time, but just bizarre ending, Davis. Let's talk about that. Okay. So, do you want to give your interpretation real quick, and I'll give you the alleged. The interview that Stanley Cooper gave in 1980. To be honest, I don't have an interpretation. I really, like, I don't... Other, uh, I mean, the monolith is very clearly tied to evolution, so then you've got Dave at the forefront of that evolution, seeing as his life go, flashes before his eyes quite literally, but I don't know how much further past that I can get without just making stuff up. So there's this book that came out a year after this, written by, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, of course. Uh, yes, You're I believe familiar so. with him, at Well, least. for those who are not, so he wrote this book called Slaughterhouse Five. He's a phenomenal writer. I love the book. He's very funny. He writes in like prose or like uh, uh, stream of consciousness. I really enjoy the book. But in that book, uh, Billy Pilgrim, the main character, gets kidnapped by these aliens called Tralfmadorians and taken to their planet of Tralfmador and put in a human zoo. And the Tralfmadorians have a special connection with time where they can live at any moment in time because they don't. They have a they have a four dimensional concept of time, so they live at any moment in time. And Billy Pilgrim ends up having that same concept of time. So in the book, it's like jumping back and forth through different moments in his life, like to the zoo and all that. But Stanley Kubrick said, uh, "The idea was supposed to be that he is taken in by godlike entities, creatures of pure energy and intelligence with no shape or form. They put him in what I suppose you could describe as a human zoo to study him, and his whole life passes from that point on in that room, and he has no sense of time. It just happens." 
as it does in the film. So it's quite similar. I, if you've read Slaughterhouse-Five, you could probably... That's, that's the connection I made. I thought it was quite similar. Wow. Well, there you go then. I mean, that sounds as, as similar as it could be. That and I recommend like, Slaughterhouse-Five. That sounds like the correct, I mean, interpretation. Of course, that's Kubrick's own words. I wonder if... When that interview was? 1980. I wonder if Kubrick was almost... Well, he before he prefaced it with with I've tried to avoid doing this ever since the picture came out. When you just say the ideas, they sound foolish. Whereas if they're dramatized, no one feels feels it. But I'll try. Interesting, interesting. And then he also says, when they get finished with them, as it happens in so many myths of all cultures in the world, he is transformed into some kind of super being and sent back to Earth, transformed and made into some kind of some kind of Superman. We have we have to only guess what happens when he gets back. It is a pattern of great deal of mythology, and that is what we are trying to suggest. Oh wow. Well, I like that interpretation. That's very just interesting. And I think this, honestly, this film, if there's ever a criticism to be lauded against it, ever a tiniest one, it is the fact that it's very hard to figure out what's going on sometimes. And that's, again, Kubrick didn't want to explain it at times. He wanted to leave the mystery there that, again, like he said, would not exist in the verbal medium. Now, this film was nominated for... Four Academy Awards, it, be- it won Best Visual Effects. Kubrick did not win for Director or st- or Screenplay. However, at the BAFTAs, it won Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Soundtrack. And it got nominated for United Nations Award. I don't even know what that is. Hmm. And they did not get any Golden Globe uh, nominations at all. But this film, a major success and as legendary as they come. And again, a year before the moon landing, which hmm. is just a... Again, it really puts into context. I wonder if Neil and Buzz and uh, what's the other guy's name? I feel bad because there's always the joke that people forget the third guy because he didn't walk. I forgot the third guy. Oh, I used to know. Wow, it. Davis, I can't believe eleven. Uh, yeah, but I wonder if they saw it before they went to space. I honestly, if I'm NASA, I'm like, do not let these guys because they'll Michael freak Collins. out. Ah, that's the name. There you go. I would be like, do not let them freak out because. If I was about to go to space, this movie would freak me out, Davis. So, do you want to talk to? Oh, this is so nice. Um, do you want to talk? Sorry, I, this I'll, it's an anecdote I'll say for later. Do you want to talk about Apollo thirteen first? Because I guess it also comes out before the year two thousand, and therefore has its own concepts within it. It feels fitting to me because it's also, and it very. I think the rest of the films in our list are going to yeah, be. Yeah, I haven't CGI. seen that. One. I haven't seen it in a little bit, so I figured we go ahead and. Talk about that one. Obviously, Apollo 13 is about the very true story of the Apollo 13. It's Apollo such a good 13. movie. I want to watch It really is a great Just the cast. scene where like, we got to fit the square peg into a circle hole. Yes, I love it. Watch it. I mean, my mom and I have watched it a bunch of times. It's the film about the real-life Apollo 13 crew and their planned mission to the moon that went drastically awry and was was at risk of being the first lost astronauts in the space program up until that point. In space. In Yeah, that's an Apollo emphasis. 1. Oh, wait, that's right. That's right. That's right. Sorry, sorry. Yes, biggest first... tragedy. And sorry. it's even in Armageddon. They go to the Apollo 1 memorial in, in Armageddon. That's right. That's right. Sorry. I, I Admittedly, my Apollo first, knowledge is not huge, but it would have been the America's first lost, lost in space. Which was, again, the in the space race, it was a very, and again, just not really foreseen yet. How did things go wrong? So this cast, I mean, this is the who's who's of the 90s, by the way. Are you trying to think of who's in it? No, I had something to say. Oh. Uh, just oh. keep going. Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, Bill Paxton, Bar- Gary Sinise, and the- Sinise, sorry, uh, Ed Harris, Chris Ellis, Joe Spano, Mark McClure, Clint Howard, Ray McKinnon, 
And then a bunch of friends, including Kathleen Quinlan, Gene Spiegel, Howard, Ron Howard's mother. Oh, look at that. And then a handful of others. Also, cameos, Davis. All kinds of cameos. Jim Lovell appears as captain of the recovery ship USS Iwo Jima. Howard intended to make him an admiral, but Lovell himself, having retired as a captain, chose to appear in his actual rank. That's a pretty cool detail. Marilyn Lovell appears among the spectators during the launch sequence. Jeffrey Kluger appears as a television reporter. Horror film director Roger Corman, a mentor of Howard, appears as a congressman being given a v- VIP tour by Lovell at of the Vehicle Assembly Building as it had become something of a tradition for Corman to make a cameo appearance in his protege's films. Davis. I got it. Um, obviously, Apollo 13 was a mission to the moon. But yes. the thing that most people know about Apollo 13 – is the famous line, Houston, we've had a problem. That is from Apollo 13. Exactly. That's like the thing that people, like if people reference space, like Houston, we've had a problem. Like we literally did in the intro. Yeah, it was in the little intro I made. It is. That is from Apollo 13. They actually say that. Tom Hanks' character says it. Was he? Yes. He's Jim Lovell. Jim Lovell, okay. I was just making sure. And he does does say that, and... It's when just stuff goes awry. This movie's movie's excellent. It It is really one of the great movies of the 90s that I think kind of flies under the radar. I don't really know why exactly, but it seems to. Again, going to some more cameos, CBS news anchor Walter Cronkite appears in archive news footage and can be heard in newly recorded announcements, some of which he edited himself to sound more authentic. And Cheryl Howard, Ron Howard's wife, and Bryce Dallas Howard as uncredited background performers in the scene where the astronauts wave goodbye to their families. Is Bryce Dallas Howard related or something? Ron Howard, and then you just you, you mentioned Bryce Dallas Howard in the same breath, so it made me wonder if right. Howards are a, a pretty common name, so probably not. Well, Davis, if I'm not mistaken, she is in fact the daughter of Ron Howard, dude. What? <gasps> oh, D- Davis, when discovering that, what? I mean, that's yeah, because it was mother and then daughter. Because she, I mean, she's also you know become a bit of a director, so it kind of tracks. Hmm. Pretty cool. Pretty cool indeed. Directed by Ron Howard, in case you didn't pick up on that. Screenplay by William Burroughs Jr., Al Reinert, and John Sayles, who goes uncredited. It's based on the book Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. Direct or cinematography by Dean Cundey. Dean Cundey, sorry. Edited by Daniel P. Hanley and Mike Hill, with music by the great James Horner. And before anybody listening repeats what Cameron said a few days ago, or maybe it was Braden. I can't remember who said it. One of our guests said don't you always say the music's great? Yeah, because all the mo- all the movies we- it was it was okay. My bad. Don't need a lot of criticism against Cameron, but in my defense, all the movies we picked to watch on this or listen or ugh, watch and then talk about on this show happen to have good music because I like movies with good music. And if music is good, the movie itself tends to be pretty good too. There just, you go. just a concept, anybody. And James Horner is also amazing. It released in 1995. It's two hours and 20 minutes, and on a budget of 52 million dollars, it made 352. Or $55.2 million in 1995, one of the highest grossing films of that year. Apollo 13, it is one of two biographical or semi-biographical films we'll talk about on this episode. I think this, this one's much more biographical than First Man. Well, no, First Man's more biographical. Eh, whatever, just keep going. Either way, it's um, a based really on a true story. incredible story based on a true story, like you said, and it's just really good. I mean, I think it's it looks great. The visual effects, again, it's 1995, so there is some CGI in there, but they use practical effects when they can. It's very stressful. Exactly. The the set of the entire um, shuttle that they're in is claustrophobic. You're right there with them the whole time. The, and one of the guys gets sick in it, right? Yes. Uh, so it's it's very much a controversy in the film is that they do not let uh, – they do not let – Ken Mattingly go because he might have the Scary measles. Thinnies. 
Yeah, Gary Sinise because he might have the measles. And then um, I believe one of them ends up having a UTI, and then Bill Paxton also pukes, and it's so gross. But yeah, Bill Paxton like gets really sick. His character um, of Fred Hayes gets very, very sick. And then Jack... Swigger? I thought it was Swagger. Just Swagger. Swaggerly so or something a, like that. It's a typo on here for whatever reason. He is the backup that takes over for Ken Mattingly. And again, I want to say the zero-G effects are really, really good. I really got to give credit to a lot of films for doing zero-G effects so just well. Like, they do it. It's very detailed, very, very well put together. And um, I really, yeah, I just really have nothing critical to say in that part. And I think it really captures the human factor of, of what happens when you go into space very well, especially with like the family. Do you know back how home. they did the zero G? Uh, no, I'm assuming you just looked it up. Well, I knew I was just making sure I was right oh. because in a lot of movies where they use zero G, sometimes you can use wires or special effects, or if you want to get as realistic as possible as you can on earth, you get in a plane and you dive bomb the plane and you'll float up. Oh, and they just film the scenes like that. So is that how they? They called it. The, it was called the the vomit comet. Was the name of the plane. They did oh, it. Oh my lord! They do their scenes there. They wouldn't dive vomit, but you go down fast enough that you kind of get lifted up. And, you and then flying. they'd be doing acting. Yeah. Incredible! Incredible! What a movie! What a film! They modified a KC one thirty five reduced gravity strata tanker, a plane dubbed the vomit comet, to achieve the effect of weightlessness through free fall. Okay, that's just really cool. That's cool. really, really cool. They've done it in other movies. If they're if there's a weightless like if if they're not doing it underwater, like sometimes they'd like to do, there's a good chance they did it in a plane like that. Because I also imagine it's harder to digitally remove wires now that eight that cameras are picking up more details. Is that I mean, too, I mean I'm just saying, like it's probably easier to blur wires when the camera itself is blurrier where the H D will pick up. In two thousand one I'm sure they just they either painted it out by hand or they just sneakily hid them like yeah. behind his arm or something exactly. when his arms up and it's just it's, oh, it's so good i really think that this film just again it captures the human element which i think is a very nice juxtaposition to 2001 versus obviously that film which captures some human element but even less so because the characters are almost experiencing yeah. the story right there with you this film has you know the jumping back and forth between the family houston and all the drama going on there I just think it captures an incredible story well without missing the mark because it is an incredible story. I, I'm a sucker in movies for like realistic procedures, which I know it's a weird thing to say. No, but it's but like seeing them do like the realistic, like how they do space launches. I just I love that stuff. All the many checks, all the many like in all these movies, they do them well. Like Ad Astra, I really like them. And Ad Astra, The Martian does them well. Uh, 2001 doesn't do them as much, but like when they do, like. Him like pushing all the buttons to get it going and like it lights up, just stuff like that. It's so cool. I really know? like how when the first problem arises with the coolant and the subsequent explosion that happens afterwards, it's not an immediate, oh my gosh, guys, let's call Houston. We're about to explode. It's like, all right, guys, let's do our checks. Yeah. Let's work did. through the process. And then, of course, you get the penultimate line Houston, we have a problem. And the film really kicks off from there. And I really think that it's, I love how you've got. It's not just – the film goes into detail explaining why it might be a hopeless endeavor. You know what I mean? They go into detail at Houston with people talking about what the plan is and how unlikely it is to work at times. Like the – we've got to fit this into this. How – I don't. I still don't even – like you just see yeah. with like all the duct tape. I also like it in the movies 
where they portray astronauts as as smart as they are because you kind of have to be really smart or know what you're doing to go into space. Yeah. Uh, here, here's very a, calm as well. Here, here's a nice little detail for everybody um, about going into space. Is They're all captains or commanders in the military. They've all gone. Not always. But in most Neil cases. Armstrong wasn't. Really? In the movie, he was a civilian. But he, he, he flew planes for that thing, but he was not in the military. Oh. If you remember. Because when he walked, oh, wow. when we yeah, get to the first man, okay, yeah. he goes and interviews for the Apollo program, and everybody else is in there, like their military blues okay, or whatever. And then he's yeah. just in a suit, and the other guy. Uh, the guy that ended up dying in the plane crash, whatever his name was, was like civilian as well, and then he went and interviewed. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, I didn't actually. I completely missed that. Admittedly. I don't think you. I want to. I want to make sure I'm right. I'm just going based off the movie right now. But I, I really will agree with you, Davis. That again, astronauts are very, very smart, and they have a lot to do to go up into space. And it's this film treats them like that. I think better than most. So he did. He was a naval aviator. But okay. at the time, he was a midshipman as well in the Navy, but he wasn't in the military at the time when he went. So I guess he technically was in the military, so I'll apologize. He was a lieutenant. Oh, okay. there you go. <laughs> he was a test pilot is what they showed the movie. Okay, that's right. That's probably what he'd done after leaving the military, I'm guessing, at some point. Yes. Okay. So all, I, I apologize tracks. to Mr. Armstrong that I misre- mis- misrepresented there that you he did have service. Davis, I think it's okay, and I also think... I don't think you'll care. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, can't, I can't imagine so, and I think... We're gushing about this film so positively, and you're probably wondering, where are the negatives? Well, the thing is, Davis, not many people have been able to find the negatives, because this film was nominated for not nine Oscars. I think my negatives would probably come, because I just love the space stuff so much, that when you get sucked back to the family, like, obviously it's good, but I'm also like, I want to see him in space. I want to see him back in space. I think it, I think it was a necessary approach it, it to at necess- least humanize it, yeah. them as much as you can, but I, I will agree, because... The action in Houston and in space is so high octane. Yes, so, so good. Ed so Harris is there freaking out. Ed then... Harris is aw- By the way, Ed Harris might be. I don't want to say this about a guy with as extensive a career as he has had, but one of the more underrated actors in. Re- I mean, he's great in every movie. He was in he's something in. I saw recently. He was doing good. He's great in. He was in Top Gun Maverick. That's not what I was thinking of. Oh well, maybe you'll think of it. Truman but, Show. Oh, oh my! Don't even. Do not. Okay, I won't even. The Truman Show and all of its incredible, incredible moments there. Now, what I said earlier when I said I'll talk about it later is I'm looking at the Oscar list for the nine um, awards it was nominated for, and this is the one and only Wikipedia page that has had the What the Film Lost to oh, next really? to it. So really? it says it's. It, we don't have to keep looking for each one. So it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Supporting Role. That was Ed Harris who got nominated. Ooh, who he lost to is an interesting one. And then... Best Actress in a Supporting Role is Kathleen Quinlan. Best Screenplay Based on Material Previously Produced or Published. Best Art Direction. Best Film Editing. Best Original Dramatic Score. Best Sound. Best Visual Effects. And Davis, guess which two it won for? Um, best Visual Effects. That is not correct. It won for Best Sound I was gonna say that was and Best like. Film Editing. Oh, my God. Go ahead and tell us what they lost to, Alex. Best visual effects lost to this movie, Babe. <laughs> How'd they make those The story talk? about a pig. How'd oh, they make the animals talk, Alex? You ever my that? highway don't do that. robbery. Who cares? It, it lost best picture to Braveheart, which... Okay, actually, to be fair to Babe, I don't think there was a movie before that where the animals actually, their mouths moved. It is 1995. But think about it. Think of it like Homeward Bound is another animal movie I can think of. That was actually probably in the like the sixties, but they just had or there was a they made the remake as well, but like 
their mouths didn't move. Like they just had the people talking, and then the animals were there. Really? Yeah. Like okay, Homeward I've, Bound. I've never seen the original one. I guess. Uh, but the, even they made the Homeward Bound with um, Michael J. Fox. That was in the nineties, ninety three. The animals' mouths do not move. Okay, so maybe Babe gives some props then. We'll give, I just, we'll give we gotta, Babe some props. We gotta give all due respect there. All due respect, of course. It lost Best Picture to Braveheart, as I just mentioned, which that might be a fair one because Braveheart's a pretty good film. Ed Harris lost to Kevin Space in The Usual Suspects for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. And then Best Score from James Horner lost to Il Postino. I, Il Postino, known That's as The Italian, Postman, an yeah. Italian film with the score from Luis Enrique's Bakulov, so I've never even heard of that film at all. But again, nine Academy Award nominations. It got, what is it, four Golden Globe nominations, did not win any of them, and had a bunch of BAFTA nominations, winning Best Production Design, Outstanding Achievement in Special Visual Effects. Davis, any final thoughts on Apollo 13 before we move on again? Great movie. I keep moving on too much, but we do have six movies to talk about. Yeah, we got a great movie, and then we'll talk about another one, end of the Apollo program, First Man. About Neil Armstrong. Absolutely. I think one last note I'll say is this film is probably the least inspired by 2001, strictly because it's telling a true story. Mm-hmm. I think with the latter three that we're going to talk about, which is specifically fictitious, I can see inspiration in all three. I think that First Man sort of does, and let's talk about that, directed by Damien Chazelle, our guy, of course. Um, one second. I'm trying to get to it. While you do that, I'm going to say, so for the longest time I had heard, I guess I had just seen someone on YouTube say this movie wasn't good. So I was like, I guess I won't watch it then. But then I I, see, I saw something recently about how good it was. I was like, you know what? I'll watch it. And this is, that's what inspired the space movie thing. And this movie is phenomenal. I loved it. It is. It's so, so good. It stars. Oh, actually, say your thing real quick. I'll have a fun fact for you. I was going to say it stars the great Ryan Gosling as the penultimate character, Neil Armstrong. Davis. Mm-hmm, continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie is based on a book. Did you know that? Yes, I believe I did. It's written by Neil Armstrong, isn't it? No. It is written by a professor who taught here at Auburn University. (gasps) What? Whoa. Auburn Fun Facts by Davis. Excellent. That's cool. And I was thinking about getting it. It's called First Man. I'm thinking about getting it because it seems really good. But it's about Neil Armstrong. And I think it, since the movie's based on it, I'm sure it also tackles his mental side of it. Because this movie, uh, unlike Apollo 13, which focuses just strictly on the events this movie kind of is like a character study of Neil Armstrong, and it looks at his life and the moon landing and stuff through the lens of his relationship with his wife and the death of his daughter, which I thought was very fascinating. Absolutely. Very touching. Because at the end of the movie, he drops the bracelet onto the moon, which I don't think is real. I don't know. I think that happened, but it was a very touching scene. I would agree 100%. So, again, it stars the great Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. Sorry to, sorry to steal your thoughts. No, no, no. It's okay, Davis. I actually, at least, that actually makes a perfect point that I'm going to bring up at the end of this cast list. Clara Foy as Janet Armstrong. Clara Foy is a great actress, very underrated in this role. Jason Clark as Ed White. He w- died during the pre-launch test for Apollo 1. I love Jason Clark. Kyle Chandler as Deke Slayton, one of the f- original Mercury 7 astronauts who becomes NASA's first chief of the astronaut office. Corey Stahl as Buzz Aldrin. Patrick Fugit as Elliot C. Christopher Abbott as Dave Scott. Siren Hines as Bob Gilbert, the first director of NASA's manned spacecraft center. And then Jim Lovell has a can- has an appearance played by Pablo Schreiber. So that's pretty cool. Oh, I thought you were saying Jim Lovell was in. No, as in the character. Sorry, 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 sorry. Should have should have clarified that. And then Brian Darcy James as Joe Walker. And then it's directed by the great Damien Chazelle screenplay by Josh Singer, based on that book by James R. Hansen, First Man. Cinematography by Linus Sang Sandgren. 
edited by Tom Cross, and music, again by Chazelle's longtime collaborator and friend, Justin Hurwitz. The film released in 2018, first at the Venice Film Festival and then in the U.S. It's two hours and 21 minutes, according to my research. And on a budget of $70 million, it only made $105 million, so it's probably considered a, a commercial failure. Now, Davis, let's talk about something that's going to make you, well, let's just say you're going to chuckle at this. I have a, I have a good feeling. Because... This man, this film has an American flag controversy because you, of course, we all know the very infamous one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind plants the American flag on the moon. Not infamous, infamous and famous. Many things can describe that. Because people say it's fake. True, true. It's, it's a lot of things. And it's one of the most iconic shots and videos of all time. Well, on August 31st, 2018, it was reported that the film would not include a scene of Armstrong and Aldrin planting the American flag on the moon. So, of course, Florida Senator Marco Rubio had to weigh in and described the omission as total lunacy. Chazelle responded with a statement saying, quote, I show the American flag standing on the lunar surface, but the flag being physically planted into the surface is one of several moments that I chose not to focus upon. To address the question of whether this was a political statement, the answer is no. My goal with this movie was to share with the audiences the unseen, unknown aspects of America's mission to the moon. Uh-oh, United States President Donald Trump commented on the omission, quote, It's almost like they're embarrassed at the achievement coming from America. I think it's a terrible thing. The whole movie's, you... <laughs> the whole movie's about the achievement. When you oh think God. of Neil Armstrong and when you think of the landing on the moon, you think about the American flag. Nope. For that reason, I wouldn't even want to watch the movie. Following the film's below expectations opening of $60 million, some analysis spec- or some analysts speculated that the flag controversy was in part to blame. Oh my God. In terms of its, its failing at the box office, unfortunately, that kind of controversy could certainly be to blame. But more importantly, this movie's awesome. Speaking of controversial figures in politics. Oh, dear. In this movie, and t- this movie was originally announced in 2003. Did you know that? I did not. Wow. Do you know who's slated to direct it? Um, Spielberg. Clint Eastwood. Oh, wow. That's, what, that's why I had that little transition there. Oh, okay. I, I, mean, I mean, I was reading something when you made the transition, so I didn't pick up on it. Uh, I said controversial figure in politics. Oh, Mel Gibson. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mel Gibson, yeah. <laughs> After that rendition fell through, Chazelle picked it up and signed on in 2015. And what a choice that was. And it's so good. I love this movie. It's visually brilliant. It, again, talk about Spaces of Vacuum. It it captures that very well. I think there's that first... I haven't seen the movie in a long time since my first viewing, admittedly. I'd never seen it. And there's... So there is a scene when he orbits the Earth first, right? And it's just, like, haunting. Because then there's, like, buttons start going off, and you're like... And he has to... That's when he's doing the test pilot you're talking about. He has to go back down. And then later on, he goes back up. And they, they try the docking scene, and then there's a issue with the thing, and they have to detach and stuff, and they have to. But he stays calm, right? And that's he, why they're like, okay, he's going to be the Apollo Eleven guy. Yeah, exactly. And there's that whole test pilot sequence where he's testing it like in the outside with that entire machine or whatever the heck he was flying around. That scene was crazy too. It's visually okay. a great. That was, that was to practice landing on the moon. That's just if you didn't figure. If you, I mean, I did. It's just, just a crazy. Listening, it's did. just a crazy concept. Honestly, I want. I'm, I'm going to look at that's real. It's. I mean, I know yeah. it's real, but like, I want to see it. Yeah, I agree. So. I agree. I agree. Um, this film looks just great. It looks really, 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 really good, and it got um, some award recognition. But again, its failure at the box office could be attributed to any number of things. Oh my goodness, this thing's crazy. Let me see. It's what it looked like in the movie, but yeah. They Madness. Had to, they had to offset for Earth gravity and stuff while doing. It, I'm pretty sure. Madness. Unbelievable. What a what a display. And again, it looks everything looks great. I really think it's such a brilliant 
deconstruction of someone that has probably been, at least in some part, interpreted as a very one-trick pony, a very one-stagnant character. Oh, he's the man that went to the moon and said all these lines or whatever, but there, there was a lot going on. He had a, he had a tough life from from how it seems. And then, and then even tougher, I mean, he, like... We're all glad, like everybody was all happy that we got to the moon and whatnot, but the journey there was a lot of mistakes and a lot of, we don't know what's going to happen up there. There's a billion moving parts and a billion things that could go wrong at any given point, at any given time. And I think the film finally captures that stake better than most films that exist now today. And even Apollo 13 captures that, but Apollo 13 had so much going on. This film gives you more of a time to realize what this character is about to go through and what he's about to endure and what his family is going to go through. He was going up into a vacuum that nobody had ever been in before mm-hmm. and go, going to a place that nobody had ever been before. Everybody involved in the Apollo missions and involved in, the, in all these missions at NASA were doing something that nobody had ever done. And I think this film really captures the horror of that more than a lot of films can capture the wonder and the beauty of space and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This film does the opposite. It captures the terrifying nature yeah. of that vacuum. I think just the the scenes where he's like looking out the window of the capsule and it's just black, black. just a void. It's just nothing. It's it's pretty incomprehensible to think of because we can't imagine like we can't imagine a vacuum because we've never been in one. Exactly. Like we're used to walking around air and there's light and stuff, but like space is just nothing. Like they're just objects floating in a void basically is what it and is. even even then we also know that you don't see stars when you're in space most of the time because of because of i don't, I don't remember the reason exactly to it but there there are reasons there's the sun i'm pretty sure but while you're there ah what is it i used to know i'm, I'm a big space i'm looking nerd. it up why don't you go ahead and, and talk about it while i'm looking it up there's just so many great scenes in this ryan gosling does a phenomenal job if he didn't get nominated for best actor he should have because he just brings such like a quiet somber haunting like just emotion. he did not he should have because okay. he was phenomenal in this who got nominated this year uh let me see if i can let's see let me go i'll look up look. the star thing while you do that i, I found it actually okay. it's basically that they're too faint to show up and the reason we see them here is because i think it's something to do with the sun reflecting mm-hmm. and so on i think um so the 91st academy awards best actor oh boy Oh, boy. I'm going to give you the nominees, then I'll give you the winner mm-hmm. following the nominees. So, nominated for Best Actor, Viggo Mortensen in Green Book. Ugh. Willem Dafoe at Eternity's Gate. There's not really debating that one. Bradley Cooper in A Star is Born. Christian Bale in Vice. And then the winner, Davis, if you haven't figured it out yet, Rami Malek in oh Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, goodness me. Oh, my. But he wore those fake teeth, so he deserved it. And, of course, First Man did not get nominated for Best Picture, and Green Book won for Best Picture that year. Films also included in the nominees were Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. Roma is the only one that I could see beating First Man if First Man had been nominated. I don't know. I've heard The Favorite is really good. What's that? Which one's uh, that? It's, it's a film that stars Olivia Colman about early 1800. Great Britain. Apparently, it's really, really good. Interesting. I haven't seen that. I uh, Olivia Coleman won Best Actress that year. Okay. So it that that film, I'll I'll give that one some credence. It apparently did. It, and it got a lot of nominees that year too. So it did really, really well. Do you want to kind of get the rest of what we want for this movie out so we can get to the future? Because we have three movies. For that's true. Yeah. No. Space. Yeah. That's fine. Go ahead, I was go just ahead, thinking. Davis. I was just gonna. I was just gonna end it with like this. This movie does like a character study of someone that has probably been written about 
more one of the most written about people in history, probably. Especially within the last seventy years, because he landed on the. He was the first person to ever step on the celestial body that orbits Earth, the Moon, That's which incomprehensible achievement, but he did it, and he did it with all with all the all the the tragedy that came with the Apollo program, all the strife that came with it, all the all the stuff that was trying to stop them, but he still did it. And I guess we technically won the space race because of it. But this movie re, like readjust your view of him into a way that is much different than the way we've been taught. Because as a kid, they're like, yeah, he was just so cool and he landed on the moon. He's an American hero, but this is like it, it gives you a different – it recontextualizes the events and, and him. There's also a thing with people that have landed on the moon and they turn and you look at the earth. And you see how small it is compared. You've probably seen the photo. Like yeah, of the, course. The, the big blue dot or the big blue marvel, whatever they want to call it. It apparently most people that have done that they get like really depressed afterwards. And Neil Armstrong kind of you didn't hear much from him after. Buzz Aldrin's talked about it a lot, like just how insignificant it makes you feel. Because you realize it. that you're just a small speck you're, you're in just, the yeah. in the chasm of space is as good a word as I can think of. And it's it's a great movie. It almost redefines who he is in a way, and I I think recontextualize is a better word, and I'll stick with that one. And again, it got four nominations at the Academy Awards. Best production design, best sound editing, best sound mixing, and best visual effects. It did win for best visual effects. Again, it looks really, really good. And at the Golden Globes, Claire Foy got nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and Justin Hurwitz won Best Original Score. First Man, again, we haven't actually given our star rating for all these movies, but let's just say they're all above eights. I gave a 10 to um, 2001. 2001. I'll see what I gave First Man. And then, of course, Apollo 13. They're all eights or above. I gave it a nine. Nine first man. I said, That's man, fair. dude from La La Land is taking the breakup hard. <laughs> I did see that. That was a funny review. I did see that. And my review for 2001 A Space Odyssey was never using Chad GPT again. So. <laughs> very nice, Dave. It was very nice indeed. And with that, we can move on to Moon, a personal favorite, what has become a cult classic. Love One Moon. of my dad's favorites. That's how I first Directed. watched it. Do you have who was directed by? Duncan Jones. Do you know who that is? No. David Bowie's son. What? Yep. There you go. And he also made a se- he made like a spiritual sequel to this, his other movie that's apparently not as good, but you do see Sam Rockwell's character in that. Oh Fun wow. Fact. Kevin Spacey plays the robot, Sam Rockwell plays himself or not himself. He plays the main character two times. Yes, he does. I guess three times. It's even. it's this cla- this cast is quite literally Sam Rockwell, Kevin Spacey, Dom Dominique Miguelliot. That's the Mi- guy that's Miguel- talking about Miguelligot, sorry. Coming up to get him, I think. And then Benedict Wong and then Matt Berry as Overmyers and that's pretty much it. it's directed by Duncan Jones, written by Nathan Parker. The story of course is by Duncan Jones, cinematography by Gary Shaw, edited by Nicholas Gaster and music by Clint Mansell. I want to look that guy up for a second. It released in 2009 on three different dates. It is the shortest film in this episode, an hour and 37 minutes, but it might be the most underrated film on this list today. It On a budget of $5 million, it made 9.8 at the global box office. Davis, this is one of your personal favorites. Why? It's just such a good, compelling... It's about, spoiler alert, it's about clones. It's about space. It's about exploitation of labor in space, which is an, it's an interesting thing that that's kind of tackled in a lot of different space movies, space ideas. Like the big capitalist co- company goes crazy, like in Aliens, they do that, and they're like they just care about the money, which is it showed in Moon, but in a more personable way because you're only with this one character this whole time, and Gertie, of course, <laughs> and Gertie, and they just they're just gonna keep cloning them forever. Like once they see the little, like once he finds the clones, and it's just. A lot, a big theme of space movies is loneliness, and I think 
this one really recaptures that because all he wants to do is get home to his family and the only person he has to talk to is a robot and then himself, literally and yeah. figuratively. And it's done so well. Sam Rockwell is a treasure, one of the more underrated actors ever of all time. Yeah. Every performance he's given has been brilliant from films such as The Way Way Back to Green Mile. Green Green Mile to Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, mm-hmm. which I think was his sort of not breakout, but in the Hollywood sense, they finally gave him the recognition that he's so deservedly there needed. Is, I do have issues with that role. Not him, the writing of it, not him personally. That's fair. That's fair. That, and I, that, that I've heard there's a lot of similar criticisms as well. This film, again, it, it really captures the loneliness of space and the examination of how someone handles and grapples with these things. And this is, you know, the first of our three films going into the future. And it's a very common thing is the oblivion delves into the same thing, by the way. I don't know if you've seen that movie with Tom Cruise. It's pretty much the same general concept in a way. It's a little different, Mm -hmm. of course, but I mean, this is a privatized company that's just making clones and just taking advantage of, of that. And just to the point of using them for whatever they can get and then kicking them to the curb. And Rockwell does so well playing both and creating enough differences between the two to make you realize that they are different characters. But they are. But the thing is, they're the same character. Because when he went up there, he had anger issues. But being alone that long mellowed him out was kind of the thing it was saying. So there's the one near the end of his clone life where he's really mellow. He does all the the the, the model stuff. He's really quiet and kind of timid. He doesn't want to fight. But then the new Sam Rockwell is all like, too cool for school. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm so cool. Yeah, I don't care about you, old man. And he's like really braggadocious and abrasive because that's how he was when he got up there absolutely yeah and it's just it's so it's so well done on his part i really want to commend everybody involved in this film for the way they directed the set design is really well done i think it just it looks really good for being such a low budget film it's the lowest budget film on this list that includes 2001 a space odyssey which came out 41 years before this film and again i think how can you not say that gertie is inspired by hal how can you not? I don't think you can say any AI or robot in a space movie is not inspired by Hal. Hal is the blueprint. He Hal, j- like the monotone speaking, even in Interstellar, Tars, and uh, all them, they're a little more personalized, but like that's they're Hal. Exactly. They're they're and honestly, that film Interstellar kind of flips it on its head because they use the preconceived notions that the characters in the film have about AI, and then make Tars and. Can't remember what the other case 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 right. stars and there's Kip is Matt Damon's one exactly you have those they have to Kip Thorne of course of course you have those three kind of be the opposite of it and sort of not exceed the expectations but definitely go past them in what people would anticipate subverting if anything I just and I really like this this one. section we had our dawn of dawn of space movies uh final uh the the Space Age, whatever I called it earlier. And then I just thought of another way we could call this one, Loneliness in Space. Because all three of these movies really tackle being alone in space. And how it can affect you. Moon. Just... And then do we, do we have more we want to say about Moon? Uh, I mean, I, I have a little bit. Okay, go ahead. But I just think, one, I really like um, this di- director followed this up with the source code, which is a really good movie, by the way. And I just think that it's a shame that I don't believe it got any many accolades whatsoever did not get a single academy award nomination or this was like Golden an Globe indie nomination movie. it's an indie movie well it should have gotten some nominations oh let's see here's the thing 
reception from the scientific community. Moon was screened as a part of a lecture series at NASA's Space Center Houston at the request of a professor there. Quote, yeah. he'd been reading online that we'd done this film about helium-3 mining, and that's something that people at NASA are working on, says Jones. We did a Q&A afterward. They asked me why the base looks so sturdy, like a bunker, and not like the kind of stuff they are designing that they are going to transport with them. I said, well, in the future, I assume you won't want to continue carrying everything with you. You want to use the resource on the moon to build things, and a woman... And the audience raised her hand and said, I'm actually working on something called Mooncrete, which is concrete that mixes lunar regolith and ice water from the moon's polar caps. Interesting. In a 2013 October issue of the journal Trends in Cognitive Sciences, academics ranked their top brain science movies of all time, their database being compiled by cognitive science researchers who are also movie buffs. The database, called Cognitive Science Movie Index, ranks films for quality, relevance, and accuracy in the field of cognitive science. On their top ten list of brain science movies of all time, Moon appears at number five on the quality list, number nine on the accuracy list, and number three on the relevance list. Heck yeah. Which, again, it does all this on a very, very modest budget. And I say that because that's what Wikipedia calls it, so I'm going to keep using that word. I just really, really like this film, and I think that it's so simple but it's it's almost a must watch because of the performance of Rockwell and everybody involved in putting together such a fine-tuned film in such a short amount of time. A lot happens, a lot goes on. It's a very brilliant character study and I really love this movie. I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10. I'll give it a 9. I have this poster on my wall, one of my favorite posters of all time of Sam Rockwell standing in front of the like the the optical illusion. And we will post it with our our uh, Instagram post about the show obviously and you'll see that post. I got to see if I have reviewed this on Letterboxd. I, I don't believe I have. I give it a four. Oh. <gasps> a guy I like on here didn't like it. Whoa, what? Who? Hmm. Actually, maybe don't answer that question. Um, I'm trying to see if I rated it. Let's see. I give it a four. I'm going to see. So an eight. I really like, I can't imagine not like giving this movie. Yeah, so a guy a guy like here gave it a, gave it a seven. Huh. Well, that's really interesting. But why don't we move on to The Martian? It's released six years after Moon. Directed by the great Ridley Scott of, you know, every Everything, movie yeah. ever fame, obviously, among many, many other things. Stars Matt Damon as Dr. Mark Watney. Damon prepared for the role by a different method than, Chast- than Jessica Chastain. He explained, for me, the rehearsal process was sitting with Ridley and going kind of line by line, moment by moment, through the script and playing out a plan of attack for what we wanted each scene to accomplish. Jessica Chastain stars as... Commander Melissa Lewis, she prepared for her role by meeting with astronauts and scientists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and Linda B. Johnson Space Center. She was inspired by astronaut Tracy Caldwell Dyson, saying, quote, she's very matter-of-fact, very straightforward. My character is dealing with the guilt of leaving a crew member behind, but she's still responsible for the lives of five other crewmates. I tried to play her as Tracy would have been in those moments. Kristen Wiig is in this film, Jeff Daniels, Michael Pena, Sean Bean, Kate Mara, Sebastian Stan, Mackenzie Davis, Benedict Wong, Donald Glover, Chen Shu... Axel Henny, Eddie Ko, and Chiwetel Ejiofor as oh, Vincent Kapoor. Naomi Scott was cast as Ryoko, a member of the JPL team. She filmed her scenes, but they were removed from the final cut, resulting in her appearance becoming a silent role. It's directed by Ridley Scott, screenplay by Drew Goodard, based on The Martian, a 2011 novel by Andy Weir. Very good. Cinematography, very good so I've heard from everybody that's I've ever read, read it. it. It's very good. Cinematography by Darius Walski. Or, yes. Edited by Pietro Scali. Scalia and music by Harry Gregson. Anton Williams. Scalia, Anton uh, Scalia did the editing on this. No, Pietro Scalia. Uh, maybe they're related. Or Pietro Scalia. And then again, the music by Harry Gregson Williams. People who may recognize his name uh, often collaborated with Ridley Scott. He did the Narnia films, and he did a certain film that I've been trying to get Davis to watch for a very, very, very long time. 
Kingdom of Heaven. Kingdom of Heaven, exactly, Davis. Thank you very much. Two hours and twenty-one minutes on a budget of one hundred and eight million dollars. It made six hundred and thirty point six million dollars at the global box office. Pretty great in twenty fifteen. One of the highest grossing films of that year. The Martian. What a movie, Davis. You said you loved it early when we were talking about it. I what you got? Adore for this. I've seen this movie so many times. It's it's like a mix of the dread of being left on a planet alone, which is obviously the thing also about the loneliness. Um, it's just so good. But like, it's 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 a mix of like good space movie, but also like a hopeful rescue mission and stuff. It's just a great mix of everything. I love it. It's Matt Damon's so good in it. I think all the all the character all the people that are in it are great. I think Jeff James is really good Jeff in Jane as well. Really, Chiwetel Ejiofor is really good in it as well. Even his little part. Donald Glover is good in like the. Two seconds that like he's the on three screen. minutes he's in. Yeah, his, he's one, his one big scene is great. Did I you think. know that fall he did was not scripted? Oh, really? Uh, he funny. just he just fell, and Ridley Scott was like, "You hear someone like hit the other actor in the scene goes like, oh my god, are you okay?'" And that was just he was like breaking character, but he's like, "Yep," and he just kept going. And then Ridley Scott was like, "That's a good scene." Yeah, I love it. I again, you got but a yeah, great mind movie. behind it with Ridley Scott, one of the great great directors of our time. He's made. As many, he made the original Aliens, by the way. Mm-hmm. So this guy's been in space many times, or the original Alien. Yeah. excuse me. Um, and I'll, I want to talk about this for a brief moment, though, Davis. Not to not to dunk on the. Can film. I say one thing? Yes, go ahead. I was gonna say uh, it's not as good as like 2001 on a like artistic standpoint, I'd say, but like it's just so charming. It's just so fun. It's just a great movie to me. Like I, I just this is one of my comfort movies. Like you just watch it, you know what's gonna happen. But it's still such a fun ride every time. I love I, it. I would say in terms of story-wise and how it all fits together, this is closer to Apollo 13 mm-hmm. in its storyboard fo- or story-focused, journey-focused versus I think the other four films we're talking about are much more character-driven, if anything. Mm-hmm. I, I would say this one falls closer to that. So here's an interesting point. I actually had not heard about this until, well, now – the Media Action Network for Asian Americans, known as the MANAA, criticized the casting of white actor Mackenzie Davis as Mindy Park, who it said was described by author Andy Weir as a Korean American. The group also criticized the casting of Chiwetel Ejiofor as Vince Kapoor, who MANAA said Weir described as an Asian Indian character. In the novel, the character's name was Vinkat Kapoor, and he identifies religiously as a Hindu, a Baptist and a Hindu in the film. The group called the casting whitewashing and said that Asian actors being underrepresented in Hollywood were deprived of acting opportunities. Weir said in October 2015 – am I saying it right? Is it Weir or were? I think it's Weir. I don't really know. Weir said in October of 2015 he perceived Mindy Park as Korean but said he did not explicitly write her as Korean. He also dismissed criticism of Ejiofor's casting as Kapoor, saying, quote, Kapoor's an American. Americans come from lots of different sources. You can be Venkat Kapoor and black. In the original novel, Weir intentionally avoided describing – Avoided including physical descriptions of the characters. So there's that little bit of controversy that I didn't really know existed with this film until, well, the preparation for the podcast began today. I really think this film, you know, Davis, I, I don't mean I don't want to be negative, obviously, because I'm giving that up for Lent. Um, but I'm not. Ah, uh, yeah, yes, I know you are not. Um, I think this is probably my least favorite film of the six that we're talking about today. I okay. I think that's I, fair. Of all the other ones we have, they're all true. They're true. All we, really we, got, we got we got and that well that that might surprise people when we talk about Ad Astra, but I really cannot wait to talk about that further on for one very specific reason. Um, I just think that it doesn't. I don't know. I think it it could have executed a little bit of its concepts in terms of its emotional impact that mm-hmm. these events should be having a little further than it does. I think it just runs out of time, and that's 
I'm sure that I'm sure the book delves into things a bit more in detail because it's a book and books can do that. I just think that I was even the first time I watched, I was disappointed with how it is. It is very comedic, which is fun, but I think there are some interesting concepts that can be, you know, delved into more. I think you get those when Watney reveal realizes that he's stranded, and when he finally gets contact with people, well, you when can he has see his that. breakdown and stuff. I would have liked more moments like that. I agree. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you would have loved to see some of that from the crew, maybe a bit more. Because yeah. what happens when you leave your friend behind? I, I think there's some deleted scenes of them. Yeah, that, I believe that I believe really that. make it in. Which is why, like, I love Jessica Chastain. I feel like she's almost underutilized in this movie. She's one of the great actresses of the recent years, and she almost feels like a, a backseat because, again, I'm sure Scott, in his in his way, probably made a three-hour movie, as he did with Kingdom of Heaven, and then he's like, all right, where do I cut? And he probably said the crew is the first to go because they're not nearly as essential to the plot. And I respect that because in in service of the plot, the film goes more in depth on what's happening. It makes sure you as an audience member understand what's going on and not be confused, which is nice. We like that because well, sometimes films like will just go don't don't ask, don't wonder. But I think it executes most of those concepts really well and or, or executes most of it, but I think it's just a step further it could have gone that it didn't for me. But again, it looks brilliant. It is directed well, it's written very well. It's got a cast that is again a who's who of this past decade. It seems like of so many incredible people. And again, when you got Ridley Scott directing, you're going to do well. It got nominated for eight Academy Awards. Did not win any of them though. Hmm. Did not win a single. Did not win Best Visual Effects. Hold up now. Ho oh, ho. Hold up. So let's see. This is the what the twenty. I'm trying to figure out which Academy Awards it is. Wait, no, sorry, not eight. It got nominated for seven Academy Awards and did not win. Any of them. Davis, can you do me a favor and talk for a second while I look up the 2016 Oscars and see yeah. what film did get nominated for Best Visual Effects? Because I thought this film looked great. It did look great. Um, it really looked like they were on Mars. And I think a lot of the science of it as well checks out for the most part. I watched a video about that one time. It's pretty interesting. Any weird uh, checked all his boxes for the most part. I think there are some stuff that don't really make a ton of sense, but it's okay because it's a good movie. It's a good book. But... Uh, just in general, when I like space movies specifically, but just movies in general, I like them to have some like philosophical undertones. And this one doesn't have it as much as yeah. like Ad Astra or 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is why I still would prefer those like all time, which I know is kind of crazy. I love The Martian. Like, I just can just put that movie on and love it. Yes. But agreed. like, it's not requiring a lot of thought within the view which isn't an issue it's not an issue at all yeah there's, there's so many movies like that and that's fine there's it just so many doesn't great go deeper like and when compared to others like it could have delved more into the loneliness of space if they wanted to but they really didn't i would agree with that so it looks like the martian lost out to ex machina which of course that's fine and also what a category of nominees here you've got mad max fury road the martian the revenant and then star wars the force awakens okay that's <laughs> Well, is that for in, visual effects? Yes. Okay. okay. So okay. that that that's I thought okay. you were best no, 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 no. Best picture was even bigger. Best picture. I mean, listen to this. Listen to this. Best picture group, Davis. Are you buckled in? Spotlight, The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max Fury Road, The Martian, The Revenant, and then Room. That might be one of the best picture groups in a no. long time. But I agree with you in the fact that I just think it. It's a very enjoyable film, and again, I've seen it, I don't know how many times, 15 times. I've seen times, it quite a few times myself. But it's just a good, you put it on and watch it. It's like, just you when, really, when we're making these direct comparisons. I don't want to say you have to think too much, because you do have to, like, but it's not like you have to be like, oh, what does this mean right here? Yeah. It, you don't have to interpret much. It's just there, and it's a fun watch, and I still love it. It's one of my favorites. 
just a good watch. Absolutely. I, I think I'd around. give it a 7.5 to an 8, I'd somewhere give it a, in that range. I'd give it like a 9 on Letterboxd when I reviewed it back in the day. But like, I'd probably give it like an 8 now. And it's still, again, a very, very enjoyable film. And my theory, uh, I think that the shuttle that the team is using is very heavily inspired by the main shuttle in 2001. Like, think about that long track. And then the running, the... The gym that's rotating? So that I mean, is, how can you not? That's a theoretical thing already. And the ISS kind of has that basic shape, but it doesn't have the spinning thing like that. Because that's like a an idea for use in space. Going to get a little sciencey on you. But it's never been really tested because when you're spinning like that, if you like look to your side, it'll like mess you up, completely right. disorient you or something like that. It's either you look – if you're looking in front of you, you look to your side. When you're spinning like that, it will mess you up. And it it is about, but the um, idea is that you're spinning centripetally, like when you like when you spin a bag over, around your arm and none right. of the bag's contents fall out. That'd be the idea, like you're sticking to it. And it also is the idea we saw at the end of Interstellar about the use of space in space, the fact that you can make you know the 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 whole town there in this ends up being upside down because yeah. you can just very cool. Use those Love theories. That. That's a, that's also a real. Thing. But yeah, I I, I was think I was thinking about watching it in 2001. I was like, wait a minute, where have I seen this? And that 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 longer shuttle obviously comes from the ISS, but I'm sure visually yes, yes. the inspiration. I mean, Certainly. in another film that we didn't talk about today called Sunshine, which is more dystopian than any others. I'm going to touch on that a bit. When we get to Ad Astra, but The Martian. We better hurry up and get to Ad Astra. Oh, then. we got time. We got time. It's as good minutes? as as oh. they come. And then now to Ad Astra, oh, the final film shocking. on our list. This is another Maybe one I the thought most wasn't shocking. Good. This is the one I thought, like I heard people say it wasn't good. So I was like, I guess I won't watch it. And then I was like, but I had always kind of wanted to because it seemed so interesting. Absolutely. And then I watched it and it was phenomenal. Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones, two of the best actors of our generation. You've got Liv Tyler because yeah. Megan was watching. She's like, is that the Armageddon girl? And I'm like, wait. First I said, no, it's not. It and is. then she showed up. Liv Tyler's had a bit of a renaissance lately. She's in another show called The Leftovers. I recommend seeing that if you feel so inclined. And then my favorite actor of all time, Donald Sutherland, makes a brief appearance, and I was so happy to see him in this. It's directed by James Gray, written by James Gray and Ethan Gross, cinematography by Hoyt Van Hoytema, I think I was saying that right, edited by John Axelrad and Lee Haugen, and then music by Max Richter. Now, Max Richter is the On Nature of Daylight composer. You may recognize that score from the ending of Episode 3 of The Last of Us, for those who remember the scene, the final scene between Bill and Frank as they enjoy their, spoiler alert, day, then um, you'll recognize that song by Max Richter. And the score in Ad Astra is pretty great, too. Released in 2019, two-hour and four-minute runtime on a budget of 80 to $100 million. It was another box office, not failure, but drop at $135.4 million. This film, Davis, wow. I cannot begin to describe how surprised I was by my enjoyment of this. So It's just... It, it takes a lot from the 2001 book of like the long scene, the long haunting scenes. There's there's much more dialogue, but like even it, it like lends itself to want to do like the more minimalist, not talk I as much. I think if it drops the narrations, it's almost completely like that. I think the narrations are yeah. So a I, bit did much. you watch that video I sent you about it by no, James, the no, guy that directed it? Is it James Gray? Right? Yes, that's the name he, James Gray. So it was like a compilation of like the moments of his director's commentary from the Blu-ray or whatever. And he was just talking about his ideas behind the movie. And he felt it was kind of necessary to have that. They wanted to go like no dialogue, but they had to put the narration in at some point. So you knew what was happening, I think he said. But the big idea behind this movie is that there is no life out there, which I thought was insanely refreshing. That like 
you're going out, there's a hunt for this life, and then you're just alone. And it just, that's like, there's nobody else out there. And I really... And it makes Tommy Lee Jones go crazy. I agree. And I think that's such a brilliant idea. What happens when you spend all this money and all this time and all this determination, all these years of your life, and it's not there? Yeah. Like, what what would happen if Neil Armstrong went out to go to the moon and the moon just wasn't there? Obviously, that wouldn't happen. But, you know, it's no, I'm I'm saying, though, it's it's the same general concept. And this is the most exploratory in that idea. And I also, I'm going to touch on this briefly, I really... Really love the religious undertones that come with it, and no, this isn't this isn't the religious guy saying that. Even it's the fact that how can you not, when you're going and exploring space, how can people not become just confounded with a religious feeling, having seen all that? The movie I just talked about, Sunshine, touched on that. That movie is very dystopian. I'm not going to give away the whole plot, but there is a it's character. A sun. Exactly, the character that treats the sun as the deity because it's their last hope is the whole point. Anyway. Pretty interesting. I really like how this film delves into how it must affect people to see all these wonders of and and become Tommy Lee Jones' character goes crazy. It's H. Clifford McBride. He goes crazy for two reasons. One, because his life's work ends up being nothing. And number two, what happens when you believe that God has chosen you to do something? Mm. When you're com- completing all these incredible achievements and you believe that God is sending you out into the world that he has created. And what happens when there's nothing? When you were just an insignificant speck and there was nothing else out there, how can it not drive you mad? How can it not just make you question every aspect of everything that goes on? And it is amazing to watch. It's amazing to watch Brad Pitt. He's so broody in this whole movie, but I love it because it is. Wouldn't you be? It is the great idea, right? Every movie we've talked about are astronauts with a purpose, with a mission behind them. You know, going to the moon, going to the moon again, saving your own life, going to Mars and then getting home, following this mission to discover this confusing monolith thing. And then Ad Astra is, what happens when you're an astronaut in a world and all of your great creations, discovering the moon, discovering moon travel has been commercialized, has been devalued into nothing, and there's no divine purpose left. There's and it's no, all done by his father. It's exactly. It's all been done by someone more successful than him, and he just can only follow in the footsteps to go nowhere. And his mission in the movie is to spoiler alert, go kill his father. Exactly. Basically, or to prevent prevent the, the coming nasty. apocalypse. Yeah. Essentially, they, there is no direction anymore. They've done it all. They've done everything, and what's left but t-shirt vendors. I think I wrote down some incredibly hilarious lines in this. Um, this movie, Davis, you want to talk about it for a brief second while I pull up some of this stuff. I think the one line that could sum up this movie and why I like it so much is when – I can just read the whole quote. But when he finds his dad and then he like pours through the data, he says he captures strange and distant worlds in greater detail than ever before. They were beautiful, magnificent, full of awe and wonder. But beneath their sublime surfaces, there was nothing. No love or hate, no light or dark. He could only see what was not there and miss what was right in front of him. So this movie's not really about space. Exactly. It's about a father and son. It is It is a true father and son journey at its core. Oh, it's and so it's, good. It's just so I mean, good. It's, it's brilliant because and all he, the sets are amazing. All the, the visual effects. Space looks amazing. All the, 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 the ships and stuff look amazing too. I agree. Oh, I 100%. Love it. One, I loved it. Even like the – oh, so here was the line. It is all hopes we ever had for space travel covered up by drink stands and T-shirt vendors. Just a recreation of what we're running from on Earth. We are world eaters. Yes. If my dad could see this now, he'd tear it all down. It starts almost kind of funny, like tee t-shirt vendors, and then it goes like, oh, like yeah, this is not Jesus. good. Yeah, 
Like it's it is the end of time. There's only one bigger issue I have with any anything in this movie is there's a line where he says I was 16 when he left and 29 when he disappeared. But earlier in the movie they established that it was 16 years into the mission that he disappeared. So I don't know how it could be 16 when he left and 29 when he disappeared because that's 13. But that's my one like one moment where I was like, what the heck? But I think it's. I mean, even like you've got the film. They pray for to St. Christopher after Captain Tanner's death. I just I appreciate that it's not afraid to touch on those details, not in any particular reason other than the fact that I think that's a very realistic possibility of when we when we eventually, if the human race ever travels through space like this, how it would affect people, how it would affect the astronauts that see it all, how it would affect how the fact that how about the moon basically being a war zone? That just line is dropped. Oh, that was awesome. And then, of course, you've got the space-like plane flight there that is very 2001-inspired. so many inspiring, f- refreshing details about space in here. He's just like, they're fighting over resources again, and they're people duking it out on the moon, which you've, I don't know, another movie where I've really seen that. Yeah. And guns don't work in space, so they have a different type of weapon. And like, I do the guns think, are different. unfortunately, that part of the that part was in every trailer and it really hurt the film marketing wise because yeah. it made you think it was some action movie and it's not it's it's a father son st- it is a father and son in a movie that's all it is that and that, that's what makes it great and again when your father and son is brad pitt and Lee jones very good cast yeah. it's it's it really is i was surprised at how much i liked this movie davis i don't know how did he make it back all the way from neptune was my thing without because um, like they they get him on earth remember they they pick him up yeah, at the end of the movie he had the, he had the rest of the ship how would he have survived that? He did, he like passed out or something, didn't he? Well, yeah, but I mean, I mean, he passed out for a time, but then I think we're supposed to assume he okay. woke up again. Okay, he didn't just pass out for eight days. Because I, I was like, there's no way he would survive. He just that. used the nuclear blast for the boost. Okay, yeah, and that caused him to pass out, and then he's getting old. He is. I was worried at the end it was gonna be like, oh, it's been forty years or some crap, but then that because like the that beard, the like no, I and mean, there was like lighting that made his beard look gray, and I was like, oh no, because obviously he's more blonde in this film. I like pretty much everything that happens in this film. I do think it's a little strange. Well, one, actually, I'll say this. Um, finding, like, the, the bodies and the corpses when he gets on the shuttle at the very end is just scary. haunting. And when that, the monkey kills the that monkey, guy? The monkey, that was, was terrifying. That was crazy. He's missing his nose and his hand. Oh, oh horrific. This movie does They'll a lot do that of that really well. They'll do that to you, those monkeys. Those 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 chimps. Absolutely. I, I don't know about that one, but... Yeah, they um, will, man. I know, I know. Okay, okay, fair, fair, fair. Yeah, and nope, they do that. That's true. Yeah, there's That's like a, you can hear audio of like real nine one one calls. I don't, I don't think I want to do You don't want to. I don't, They're I don't, pretty I, freaky. I think I'll pass. I'm I'm concerned that you've heard those, but I was on the internet as a kid. Hey, weren't we all, Davis? Weren't we all? But I think it's time to probably wrap things up. I hate I hate to end this discussion so soon, but I mean, would you? I, I gave this like a nine. I think I gave it an eight. I think point. I gave an eight, but I'm gonna give it a nine. I'm gonna give it an eight because there, again, I have an issue with the fact that there's just a line of dialogue that doesn't make sense. Which I we can probably make it make sense. Nitpicking and then. Additionally, the whole sequence on Mars is a little confusing, especially the part where she's like, your dad killed my mom or my parents, so now you're going to go kill him too. But like, he just had revealed two seconds earlier that he like loves his dad, so it was, that was kind of difficult. But I love the psych evaluations, and oh, I love I how he's like talking all this stuff, and they're like, approved. It's just so good. It's very robotic, almost like a certain AI that we're all very familiar with. I'm afraid, Dave. Oh my gosh, what an incredible, incredible display. Now let's wrap things up with what have we been watching lately, Davis? Um, These movies. I've been playing a lot of Stardew Valley. We saw Ant-Man. Do you I want, don't do you, want, do you we don't have enough time to talk about that. Just, just, let's just say... You know, I, was, I, was, I was distraught watching it. <laughs> That's all I'll say. It is, so it is on pace for the biggest box off, biggest second weekend drop of a film that made over $100 million ever. 
the biggest drop. That Good. that's bigger than the BVS drop that was historic as well. By the way, so I watched. They that. reshot the ending as well. Yes, yeah. it's very clear too. We've that's also been revealed. Um, that movie's a mess. It is one of the least enjoyable films I've seen in recent memory. It looks horrible. It's boring. It introduces concepts that are not explored at all in any detail whatsoever. It is a completely mismanaged story, and that is my official review. But now, for a much more enjoyable film, Cocaine Bear. Mm-hmm. I saw that. It's awesome. And we're gonna pro- I'm probably going to watch The Last of Us tonight. I'm oh, I also, I used my time wisely and spent Thursday night at uh, 9 p.m. to Friday morning at 6 a.m. watching Outer Banks Season 3. Very fun. I regret it. I've, I haven't caught up on sleep yet. Whatever you, that, fun, you can't catch up on sleep. That's not a thing that's real. I know it's, it's just it's it's a figure of speech. I know. Davis. I was my goodness. And I was messing with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get a quick I, minute to your truth. I know. We. I, I've were, got two P. Oh my lord! Well, we're gonna get out of here. So the newest thing is people pulling up the ending to Captain America: The First Avenger, and then bringing up the fact that well, Marvel movies lo- don't look like that anymore. Admittedly, is that's a pretty good scene. It is. It is a very good scene. But the movie's I, not that good, though. The movie is not that good. It's Mr. Montage. It's fi- that movie it was be- much better than Ant Man. It's fine. I'll say it's fine. But do you agree with the idea that the Marvel movies have become just soulless in an artistic standpoint now, where oh, there's not I think, as much creativity? Yeah. In- yeah, yeah. We talked about like the early ones, like they were making commentary on like Iron Man one has a commentary on like. War yeah, the opening, the whole opening is like about war, like being a warmonger. Yes, just like like. They were much more refreshing back then. They were each their own movie, but now they're all like cookie like a, cutter, like a Mad Lib of action superhero movie. And even further, I'll say this: I still miss the part when Thor and them actually talked like Shakespearean characters. Now it's just like Teehee, I'm muscular. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm depressed. <laughs> I'm so fat now. Uh, my eye. Oh wait, I've got a new one. Yeah, uh, terrible. Um, I really think that. Again, people are like people are quoting that tweet you sent me, going like, "All right, guys, let's not call this movie great, but it does. It takes it takes steps." And for example, Davis, do you know who wrote Ant Man: Quantum Mania? Yeah, he, he. Yeah, I don't know his name, but the only thing he's written for is Jimmy Kimmel and Rick and Morty, and a bunch of award shows like the Golden Globes and the Emmys. Real and funny guy, that guy. That <sighs> sarcasm. On a budget of two hundred million dollars, it's only made three hundred sixty-three million dollars. I believe it did have the second or the biggest second weekend drop of all time. Jeff Loveness, and he is the guy writing Kang Dynasty. Also, the Kang Dynasty beginning with questionable motives. But anyway, Davis, that is or beginning with a questionable start off. That is all we've got. Any final thoughts you want to leave the viewers with? Except, oh wait, our trivia—we gave away the answer during the episode. Well, I've got another one, Davis. Okay. What movie contains the line, quote, smile, it enhances your face value? I don't know that one. Quote. Perfect. In that case, then, there's a good trivia. And that is an emotional movie. That's the only thing I can give you. But any final thoughts, then, before we wrap this show up? Uh, love space. If I could go to space, I would go, but I wouldn't go. I made a claim one time that, like, I would go to space, but it feels like a commercialized version where they're like, you have to go work in the helium mines. I wouldn't go. Or you have to, like, pay $100,000 for a ticket. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, I wouldn't do that either. They're wow. like, David, you want you to be an astronaut and do this for the betterment of mankind or whatever, because we want we want you to explore. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm there. There you go, then. All right, well, now, you guys, NASA, if you're listening, that's exactly how you get Davis Carroll to join your program. And now, thanks to everyone for tuning into another episode of Through the Lens. We apologize for the delay, of course, but for the second time this semester, flooding has interrupted our plans, or at least my plans. Still, this has been one of our more ambitious episodes, and we hope you enjoyed right here on Weagle 91.1 FM. If you have any thoughts on any of the films we mentioned today, space as a setting, if space could be its own genre, or if there are some movies we left out, you can reach out to the show directly by following us on Instagram at Through the Lens Weagle. That's Through the 
the lens W-E-G-L. We'll be back next week to discuss one of my favorite trilogies of all time, like some of the films mentioned today, a technical marvel in its own right, the Planet of the Apes trilogy. Station Manager Luke joins the show next week as we kick off the Andy Circus Deserves an Oscar campaign. This is Alex Houston alongside my co-host, Davis Carroll, signing off. We will talk again with you next week.